So when I was a kid, I think, uh, I think it was elementary school, um, I was playing upstairs with my house with a good buddy of mine and my little brother, and I'm sure we were probably kicking the ball around my room, even though mom said not to do that, because um, that's what we did. Um, anyway, we were playing upstairs, and all of a sudden my mom from downstairs starts yelling at us, get in the car, get in the car, get in the car, let's go, let's go, let's go. I don't know how you grew up, but <clears throat> when we heard to get in the car, we started moving immediately. We ran down the stairs toward the door, and at the same time, we were saying, hey, Mom, what's going on? What are we doing? Just get in the car. Just get in the car. So we jumped in the car, and then we asked again, what are we doing? Just hold on a minute, Mom said. So we drive down the street towards the grocery store. We drive up, and as we arrived at the store, a limousine pulled out of the parking lot. And at the same time, my buddy, who was with us, his mom is running out of the store, and she runs in and gets in the passenger seat. He's in there. He's in there. Follow that limousine. So we began to follow the limo. And as we did, we got more of the story from my friend's mom. So she was doing a little bit of shopping. She's walking down the aisle, and she turned a corner, and she ran into Mr. T. <laughs> she ran into Mr. T. Some of you know who Mr. T is. He's... He's that tough guy who wore tons of gold chains around his neck. He had a really cool warrior mohawk. He was B.A. Baracus on the show, The A-Team, which I loved as a kid. So she ran into Mr. T. And then what she did immediately was run to the store manager at the grocery store and ask to borrow the phone. I know some people are young in here. There was a time and place not too long ago where we didn't have $1,000 phones in our pockets that could talk to people around the world. So she ran and asked to borrow the phone. She called my mom and said, get the kids up here now. And so that's what we were doing. We were there trying to see Mr. T. Two crazy moms. They were crazy. Couple kids crammed in the back seat trying to find Mr. T, and so we chased him around Irving, Texas. <laughs> I'm really not sure this was completely thought out, okay? Because Mr. T was a pretty stout dude, right? And I'm pretty confident that he had bouncers in that car to protect him should some crazy people like us chase him. But we were still following him. At one point, the limo pulled into a gas station and seemingly lost, actually. And uh, one of the guys gets out of the car, goes in to talk to the clerk in the station. And moms were like, hey, get out, start waving. So we did. <laughs> so we're there waving. In a few moments, the guy got back in the car. That limo pulled up next to us. The back window rolled down. And Mr. T reached out his hand to shake our hands. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty cool deal. Immediately, we're like, I'm never washing my hand again. We got to touch Mr. T. We didn't just say hi. We got to touch him. We were cool now. Mr. T, if you happen to be listening to this message ever, thank you for entertaining a couple of crazy moms and their kids. We appreciate you making this day, or making our day. And just so you guys know, I have washed my hands since. We are in the middle of a pandemic, all right? Why is it that we can tend to love and chase after celebrities why, why does that happen? Why do people do that? Simply, we're made to worship. We are made to worship. We're created to give another worth, to honor another. It's in our DNA to follow and emulate another. 
Because our Lord created us to worship, and because he knows our fleshly tendencies, he gave a command about worship, actually a number of them. But here's one that should be on our hearts and minds. Exodus 23 says, do not have any other gods besides me. Do not have any other gods besides me. If you read in the first chapter of Romans, you'll see that people have knowledge of God. There is no one without excuse. Everyone knows that God exists, even if they deny him. We also see in that chapter that people tend to follow after their flesh, worshiping people and things rather than the creator. We place other gods before us and we regularly break God's command. Ultimately, we worship ourselves. Our chasing after famous people or things is just typically actually a power grab on our part. See, we can easily get in a mindset like this. So let's go back to Mr. T. I shook Mr. T's hand, so I'm better than all of you. And then if you were to respond in your flesh, you would quit back with some name drop of someone who is more famous than Mr. T in order to try to establish your superiority over me. And therein lies the basic problem of our humanity. We chase the wrong things. We chase the wrong people and we neglect to worship the Lord. We neglect to worship the Lord. This is this definition of Lord from Kenneth, Kenneth Weiss's word studies in the Greek New Testament. It says, the word is curious, which means he to whom a person or thing belongs, the owner. It is used of the possessor and disposer of a thing. The word is used in the LXX, which that's the Septuagint, as a translation of the August title of God, which we know as Jehovah, and thus has implications of deity. We're in the middle of Mark's gospel. And Mark's gospel helps us marvel at the truth that Jesus is Lord. It helps us to recognize that he is the one holding all power. Instead of chasing those whom are unable to control the wind and the waves, we can know the Lord Jesus and follow him faithfully. And we're going to take a look on a few verses of Mark today that describe Jesus' lordship. We're going to begin in Mark 2, verse 23. Mark 2, verse 23, we're going to begin. And it says there, it says, On the Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence? which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the scribes, priests. And also gave some to his companions. Then he told them the, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What's the Sabbath? In Exodus 20, 8 through 11, God gave the command, another command to keep the Sabbath holy. This is this comment from Walvard and Zuck in the Bible Knowledge Commentary on the Sabbath. Sabbath is a, do, a day of solemn, solemn worship of God should be kept weekly. Keeping the Sabbath holy means to separate it the seventh day from the other six days, a special day to the Lord. People are to work six days and worship on the seventh. This contrasted with the Israelites' slavery in Egypt when presumably they had no break in their daily routine. The basis for this commandment is God's creating the universe in six days and resting on the seventh. 
This was not to be a day of slothful inactivity, but of spiritual service through religious observances. In the present church age, the day of worship has been changed from Saturday to Sunday because of Jesus' resurrection on the first day of the week. You see, God had commanded the Israelites to keep the Sabbath. But throughout the years, the religious leaders began to create new rules on exactly what it meant to keep the Sabbath. And then Jesus arrived, and he directly challenged the Jewish leaders, as in the passage that we just read in Mark. Have you not read what David did? See, the the leaders have become very legalistic in their interpretation of of the law, and Jesus addressed them directly. We're going to take a look at a couple definitions so that we're on the same page. These are from the Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms. Legalism. Legalism is the attitude that identifies morality with a strict observance of laws or that views adherence to moral codes as defining the boundaries of a community. Religious legalism focuses on obedience to laws or moral codes based on the misguided assumption that such obedience is a means of gaining divine favor. In other words, it's a works-based salvation. You're going to do the work to earn God's favor. Legalism. There's another definition. It's the flip side of that, antinomianism. This is an ethical system that denies the binding nature of any supposedly absolute or external laws on individual behavior. Some antinomianists argue that Christians need not preach or practice the laws of the Old Testament because Christ's merits have freed Christians from the law. Others, like the early Gnostics, teach that spiritual perfection comes about through the attainments of a special knowledge rather than by obedience to the law. With those thoughts in mind, Listen to J.R. Edwards on his observation of these verses, Mark 2, 27 to 28, and his commentary on Mark. Edwards says this, 2, 27 to 28 of Mark, preserve an important clue concerning the relationship of Jesus and the Torah, gospel and law, which have long been a point of controversy in Christianity. The extremes of both legalism and antinomianism are avoided. Edwards goes on, he says, the law is not here regarded as an autonomous revelation, which in legalism tends to replace the person of God, Nor is Jesus a free agent who abrogates the Sabbath or the moral order or the revealed will of God as an antinomianism. Rather, the sayings of verse 27, 28 teach that the righteous purpose of God as manifested in the Torah can be recovered and fulfilled only in relation to Jesus, who is its Lord. To help his point, to help make his point a little bit more on his lordship over the Sabbath, Jesus took another step in showing his power here in the scene, beginning of verse 1 of Mark 3. It says, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them, With anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. What happens when we fall into either legalism or antinomianism? We either become a slave to our works or we become a slave to our sin. 
See, in this example of how to honor the Sabbath, the Pharisees became such slaves to their legalism that when he challenged them, they plotted to kill the Messiah, their very one whom they were supposed to be preparing for. And for us today, if we treat the Sabbath flippantly, thinking that it doesn't apply to us because we are under grace, then we miss out on what God gave the day of rest for in our lives. It is a day to reflect and to recharge so that we are ready to work faithfully in all that he has for us. There is much to discuss about Sabbath, the Sabbath rest, keeping the Sabbath, that we can't go into details today. But for now, recognize that Jesus is Lord over it and he gave it to you. And I challenge you to examine your heart in regard to the tendencies toward legalism or antinomianism and specific application and how you treat the Sabbath. There may be other areas that you battle in your life in these two extremes, but spend some time thinking about the Sabbath. Do some study. Ask the Lord to help you understand. Get some outside help to understand the scriptures. I want to highlight a couple of books that I recommend that you take a look at that could be helpful to you in the study. Mark Buchanan wrote The Rest of God. And Brady Boyd wrote, Addicted to Busy. Highly recommend that you read these, wrestle with the truths of Scripture that these guys try to help illustrate and bring out. Because it is wise that we marvel that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. That we recognize that day's benefits. And we follow the Lord's example of rest and honor of the Father. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is also Lord for all people. He's Lord for all people. Mark 3, 7. says, Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all, those, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. This description in Mark about the people coming from all these different places reminds us that Jesus is Lord for all people. Judea and Jerusalem were Jewish. Those from Idumea and beyond the Jordan would have been a mixed Jewish and Gentile group. And those from Tyre and Sidon would be Gentiles. Though he, Jesus, was the Jewish Messiah, he was also Lord for the Gentiles. For those of you like me who are not Jewish, aren't you glad that you're sitting here redeemed because of the blood of the Lamb, even though you're a Gentile? I am. He is Lord for all. You know, perhaps you've noticed this current thought in our political climate here in the U.S. Many people are desperately attempting to make Jesus a member of their own political party. But Jesus was not a Republican. Jesus was not a Democrat. Jesus was not a Libertarian, nor any other man-made affiliate. Jesus is King of Kings, and Jesus is Lord of Lords. He is He is. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 
Jesus came that every people, every nation, every tribe might be brought from death to life by confessing with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. His lordship is for all people. Many people acknowledge that truth. But oh, how quickly we can cling to our flesh and turn on our brothers and sisters simply for the way they vote. Let us not fall to that temptation, but recognize that Jesus is Lord for all people. If the thief on the cross who understood in that moment who Jesus was and believed and he was welcomed into paradise, it is probable that someone who has identified in their past as a communist will be sitting and standing with me praising the Lord for eternity because of confession in Jesus. Jesus is Lord for all people. Let us marvel at his loving kindness and may the world know us, his people, by our love. Jesus is Lord for all people. Jesus is also Lord over illness. Mark 3.10 says, since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Any of you fatigued with this current pandemic and just want to press the restart button and make it go away? See, as Mark depicts this piece of the story where Jesus is ministering to many people, his statement of why the people were crowding around him is very telling. Jesus had miraculously healed many, and they were desperate to get near him, to touch him, to experience that healing. Jesus is Lord over all illness. We do not need to live in fear of any illness. His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Pastor John Piper wrote a little book called Coronavirus in Christ toward the beginning of the current shutdowns in the U.S. I think Pastor Wayne referenced this a few weeks ago, and I highly recommend that each of you read this book if you haven't already. It has some great reminders that, that lead me to sit in awe and wonder of our God and marvel at his grace and how he orchestrates throughout life. Tagline for the book says, The God Who Reigns Over the Coronavirus. In the book, Pastor Piper walks through key biblical and theological truths to help his readers to cling to the fact that, that God is indeed sovereign over all things. And in the first part of the book, Piper shares some of his processing as he wrestled with the ups and downs of cancer. Piper states this. People would often ask me before my cancer diagnosis, how's your health? And I would answer, fine. I don't answer that way anymore. I say, I feel fine. There's a difference. The day before I went for my, that annual prostate exam, I felt fine. The day after I was told I had cancer. In other words, I was not fine. So even as I write these words, I do not know if I'm fine. I feel fine. Way better than I deserve. For all I know, I have cancer right now. Or perhaps a blood clot. Or the coronavirus. What's the point, Piper says? Is the point is this. The ultimate reason we ought to not say I am fine is that God alone knows and decides if we are fine now. To say, I am fine, when you don't know if you are fine and you don't control if you are fine, is like saying, tomorrow I'll go to Chicago and do business there. When you have no idea if you will even be alive tomorrow, let alone doing business in Chicago. Piper says this. He says, here's what the Bible says about a sentence like that. Come now, who you say, today or tomorrow we will go into such, such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
That statement's from James 4, 13 through 15. The Lord is in control and his grace is sufficient for everything that is before us. You know, I recite that truth of scripture to people in need of help all the time. And it's not uncommon that some people will say, but, but you don't know my situation. But you don't know what I'm going through. There's no but. His grace is sufficient. So then why doesn't he wipe out the virus? Why doesn't he just make it go away? Well, Scripture proclaims that his power is made perfect in weakness. Throughout time, God has used hardship to get people's attention and wake them up to their ultimate need, him. We are more desperate, in more desperate need of healing in our spiritual lives rather than from the coronavirus or cancer or any other sickness. Does that make the pain go away? No. But his grace is sufficient. And our need is to be made alive. Our need is to be made new by the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus and walk in that life, the new life that he has given to us. We can thrive in life today when we recognize that Jesus is Lord over illness and disease. He's also over, Ill, over demons. He's also Lord over demons. Mark 3, 11 through 12 says, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. You see, this side of heaven, we have much ugliness to contend with due to sin. Illnesses, contentious family and friends, poor leaders, and even more but scripture is very clear. It's very clear that our battle in life is much deeper than the areas of life we typically concentrate on. Ephesians 6, 12 says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. See, this is why it matters that we pay attention to Mark's mention here of the unclean spirits, of those demons. The battle is way different than we, in our flesh, naturally desire to think about. But we should pay attention if we long to thrive in the moments of our lives. Did you catch what Mark said about these unclean spirits who came in contact with Jesus? Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you were the son of God. James 2.19 states this, you believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. See, the demons know exactly who Jesus is. They know that he is Lord over them. They have nothing to do but shudder and plead with him. So why doesn't he destroy them? He will. That's coming. But as evidenced in his command in Mark to them, at that moment for the demons to be silent, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. Jesus is Lord over the demons and their time is coming. 
So we don't need to fret them either. Jesus is also Lord of the Apostles. Jesus is Lord of the Apostles. Mark 3, 13, beginning of 13, says Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12, whom he also named Apostles, to be with them, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the 12 to Simon. He, he gave the name Peter and to the James, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John. He called them sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Why is it important that we recognize Jesus as Lord over the apostles? See, earlier we mentioned that some people tend to chase after celebrities. You know that that happens within the Christian realm as well, don't you? Example, have you ever heard of somebody walking into church, they take a look at the bulletin, see the name of the guy preaching, and since it's not the senior pastor, they decide to leave? You ever done that? You didn't do it today, thank you. Thank you. I love you too. See, Mark's description here of Jesus naming his apostles whom he wanted near him and to send out under his authority is imperative for us to recognize the Lord is the one in power. He is the one who chooses and gives authority to others. I've been blessed in my life to sit under some amazing Bible teachers. And in my opinion, I actually think Pastor Wayne is one of the best. You and I get to learn with Pastor Wayne on a regular basis, and we should not ever take that for granted. The Lord has gifted him. But when we come here to Frisco Bible to learn with Pastor Wayne, we must remember, we must battle, that we are here to worship the Lord and the Lord only. Our enemy wants to distract us. He wants us to take take us away from, from hearing the truth. And we should not think too highly of ourselves and neglect the fact that we could easily chase after a person, even a great Christian leader. The Apostle Paul made this comment to the Corinthians. He says, For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Paul, Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to God's grace, Paul goes on and says, According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and another builds on it. But each one of you is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay on any foundation other than what has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is the foundation, the chief cornerstone. We should worship him. He is Lord of the Apostles and all those others that he appoints and calls. And Jesus is also Lord over Satan. We talked about the demons a moment ago. Jesus is also Lord over Satan. 
Beginning of verse 20 of Mark 3, it says, Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When he, his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So he, Jesus, summoned them and spoke to them in the parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan is, opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. There's a lot in there, but have you ever heard the term yin-yang? Yin-yang? Definition? Yin-yang. Eastern thought, the two complementary forces that make up all aspects of, and phenomena of life. Yin is a symbol of earth, femaleness, darkness, passivity, and absorption. It is present in even numbers in valleys and streams and is represented by the tiger, the color orange, and a broken line. Yang is conceived as heaven, maleness, light, activity, and penetration, and is represented by the dragon, the color azure, and an unbroken line. The two are both said to proceed from the great ultimate. Their interplay on one another, as one increases, the other decreases, being a description of the actual process of the universe and all that is in it. In harmony, the two are depicted as the light and dark halves of the circle. This is nonsense. Amen. It's nonsense. A house divided cannot stand. Jesus' relationship with Satan is not some weird version of yin-yang where they are mutually dependent on one another. It is not the typical story that we see in the movies about good battling evil. Jesus is Lord and Satan will not prevail. He is allowed for a time to act destructively, but like his demons, he will be put away at the right time. Jesus is Lord over Satan. He's Lord of the apostles, the demons, illness, the Sabbath. He is, and he must be approached as such. He must be approached as such if we are going to thrive in the life that he has given. Our section today, Mark 3, 31, ends says his mother, Jesus, Jesus' mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Pastor Wayne made this comment in his notes he says, other times Jesus shows great engagement with his family. But here the point must be made. Jesus, the human, is Messiah God. He is not merely your brother and friend, though he is those. He is Lord. You ever seen the t-shirt or sticker that says, Jesus is my homeboy? I guess it's kind of funny. But personally, it's always struck me as lacking. 
It's always struck me as lacking. Yes, it is true that Jesus calls me brother and friend, but he is more than that. He is Lord. He is the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You know, I have some really great brothers in my life. Some dudes, homeboys, so to speak, that I depend on. Some of these are powerful members of society in many different ways, but none of them are the king of kings. Jesus is the Lord. And if we want to thrive in the life that he died to give to us, we must stop and we must marvel and recognize his lordship and submit to his leading and example for our lives. A.W. Tozer said this in The Knowledge of the Holy. He said, left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him or at least know where, we can, where he is when we need him. We want a God we can, in some measure, control. We need the feeling of security that comes from knowing what God is like. And what he is like is, of course, a composite of all the religious pictures we have seen, all the best people we have known or heard about, and all the sublime ideas we have entertained. Jesus is Lord. Perhaps you are listening today and you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior. Today is the day of salvation. If that's you, today is the day of salvation. That's the good news. Romans says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. You are a sinner in need of a savior. His name is Jesus and his offer to you is life. You can trust him right now. Confess. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Don't wait. Many of you already know Jesus. You've trusted him at some point already in your life. The question is, are there any areas of your life where you are not recognizing Jesus' lordship on a daily basis? Perhaps you're not taking the Sabbath rest seriously and you're squandering the gift that God gave or perhaps you have become legalistic in your application of the Sabbath. I recommend you recognize Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath and learn from him. Perhaps you are not loving your neighbor well and you're forgetting that Jesus is Lord for all people. Maybe you've become divisive. Confess. Repent. Perhaps you're anxious over disease or temptations from our enemy, Satan, I ask you to pay attention and marvel at the power of Jesus who is Lord over all your life. Perhaps you're worshiping self or others instead of Jesus. Repent, follow Jesus and his word. Today you and I get to come to the communion table. This is a reminder that Jesus is Lord. It's a reminder that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to give us an opportunity for eternal life with him. For those who have trusted in Jesus, we don't have to worry. We don't have to wander aimlessly around without hope, but when we are reminded of his lordship, we can approach him humbly. We can approach him confidently. 
as our Savior and our God.